chapter 2 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to say, and I hope you guys hold me to it as I've been telling my wife since last night, and I even said to her this morning, this will probably not be the longest of sermons because I want to hold fast to the, to the, the text here and you know, expound on what needs to be expounded on and talk about what needs to be talked about, but it is not that long of a chapter. Um, I considered going through chapter 3 as well, but I don't want to do that. And one of the perks and the benefits, guys, of us doing this as a church and going through this together is you guys also know where we're going to be at the next week. And you guys know where you can go to read and to study up on as well. Um, so and I ask you guys to do that. Is, you know, last week I, I want to give out scripture for you guys to go to throughout the week. But I also want you guys to read up, come in on Sunday, kind of prepared, knowing what we're going to be talking about. Um, you can go ahead and even study as you, as you want the, the chapter that's going to be coming up. But um, I just like that feeling of us all being on the same page, if you will. So do you guys agree to that? I mean... It's, it's no surprise. I know that the, uh, the selected scriptures and all that stuff are good when we kind of just bring out sermons and topics and all that, but I do enjoy going verse by verse. So once again, we are in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, and once again, if you guys remember just a little bit of background here, this is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Um, there's debate and all that regarding how many letters that he wrote, how many visits he paid to the church at Corinth, but this is a letter that he penned that he wrote in regards to hearing from Titus that the church had repented from all the screw-up stuff that we read about in 1 Corinthians that we went through um, months ago. But that there are still are some things going on in the church that Paul does want to address. Um, we will read about that later on in the book, some accusations that people were making towards Paul. But for the most part, Paul was happy and pleased to get this report from Titus that, guess what, your letters... Your visits, they, in a sense, worked. People have repented, they've realized, recognized all of these things, and the church is doing pretty well. So Paul is wanting, especially in these first few chapters, to give them a sense of praise. But there are some teachings here, even in this short chapter, chapter 2, that I think is, is very um, profound for us as Christians today. Not even for just us as a church body, but also stuff that we need to make sure that we're putting into practice as well as individual Christians in our lives. And I want you guys, once again, to leave here with that sense of conviction through the Holy Spirit being reminded of the righteousness that you have in Jesus Christ as well to put these things um, to practice in your life. And at the end of service, of course, I will make sure that I give you guys that time with the Lord to repent, to pray, ask for forgiveness, and, and also be filled with the Holy Spirit, not just today, but also to seek that filling um, tomorrow and for days to come. So we're going to start off here in, in chapter 2, starting off at verse 1. He says here, so I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So he's elaborating a little bit as we talked about last week about maybe the church was giving um, some accusations to him that, you know, Paul's fickle. Like his, his yeses sometimes mean noes and his noes sometimes mean yeses and all that. Paul is in a sense kind of just wanting to make, you know, maybe a little bit of defense to that. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. He knew that if he had to come back to the church of Corinth in person, that there was a sense of discipline once again that he would have to lay down. So we know that he has made that visit already. Once again, we don't know how many visits that was. But it was, in a sense, a painful one for Paul to make. 
And I will say, as, as we will go on throughout this chapter, as a pastor, as a Christian, it is not a joyful thing to approach or to deal with people that are in sin and living in sin that are Christians. It's not supposed to be. And we'll find out here what Paul is teaching and talking about. It isn't that this, this approach or this discipline component is because we want you to feel ashamed about the sin you're living in. It's just painful because we love you. We love you and know that you're living in a place that will lead you to a place of destruction and pain. Paul is, is going to emphasize that, especially here in the, the first part of chapter 2. He says, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but whom I have grieved? So once again, he's wanting us to know that if I just go to you again and there's this sense of just grieve and suffering and all that, there's never going to be any joy between us. And he's even wanting to make this notion, too, that there was a space that had to be had between him and the church. How many of you guys think or have experienced before people, pastors, whatever, that can somewhat seem a little overbearing, honestly? Okay, no hands are going up. That's good because I would be like, is it me? No, I'm just kidding. But, but Paul is speaking about this space that he's wanting to give the church. And there is space that needs to be had. My wife and I talk about this a lot, that there's a, a season and a time where you're like all in with a person in regards to the stuff that they have going on in their life. You really are. Like you are just in the thick of it. You're having those difficult conversations, those painful visits and all that. And the person, let's say, is continuing to live in sin. Or let's say that they are now wrestling with stuff. My wife and I have had to learn, and I'll probably say even me more so than her, that we can't change people. That we have to allow people to have that time with the Lord. That we have to, in a sense, give them that space with God to allow God to do what it is that God does. He is the grower. We are simply the seed sowers. We plant, we water, that is it. So Paul is saying that if I come to you all the time, I'm just going to keep grieving you. You're just going to be like, man, he just won't leave us be. So he's giving them that distance there. Verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. So he is in a sense now um, making notion to the report that he's received from Titus. He knew through all of this, that God was going to work it out. He knew through the letters. He knew through the visit. He knew all that. He had all the confidence in the world, in God, that this church that he addressed, that we read in 1 Corinthians, that he calls saints, that he calls brothers and sisters, he had all the confidence that they would come to this place of repentance, that they would come to this place and realize and understand that they were indeed not living the way that they should be living that all these practices that were coming in and all that stuff. And once again, I speak this now in an application to you guys. This, in essence, is how we even need to be with other Christians as well. That sometimes we can be a little overbearing. Sometimes we can try to fix people way too much. That we do have to rely on discernment and wisdom from God, discernment and wisdom from the Holy Spirit, to be able to know and recognize when we have to dig our heels in with people, and when we need to simply just let off. And it's usually in our pride of things that what? We tend to dig in a little bit. We tend to just sit there and think, if I continue to pray for this person more and I continue to go see him more and visit him more, and I've been guilty of that as, as a pastor and as a Christian. 
I, get de I develop this pride where I just think I can say the right thing, I can give them the right verse, I can do all those things, and eventually they're just going to see it, it's going to click. And no, I just have to have all the confidence in the world and the Lord that I have sowed seeds, that those seeds have been planted, and that God will allow them to take root, and they will, they will start to bear fruit, and those individuals will have discernment and see the sin in their life and repent. And here's the beautiful thing of it. We have witnessed that and seen that happen with individuals. It doesn't happen in our own time frame, which makes it very difficult because you want to see people kind of turn back to the Lord and come to you and go, Jelaine, you were right the whole time. You visited me on Tuesday. It's Friday this week. I see the light. I see my sin. Praise God. No, it doesn't happen that quick. Sometimes it takes years. It might not even happen in your lifetime, right? We do this with our kids. We live lives to, to represent Christ to them. We're planting seeds in them, and we want to see those seeds grow, come to fruition. Like we do it on Sunday, we want to hope by Tuesday they decide they're going to give their life to the Lord and start reading script. No. Sometimes kids just have to go through stuff. Sometimes other Christians have to go through stuff to then see and know what it was that you were doing all along. And that was just showing them love. And Paul's going to go into that more in detail as well as we read on here. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the death of my love. So this is what we just got done talking about a little bit ago. Paul wasn't writing to this church to make them feel ashamed. He wasn't in a sense just grieving because, man, you know, I thought Ernie was a stand-up Christian and he just started to live and do things that he shouldn't be doing. And man, I'm just ashamed of him. Like, I just feel horrible. Like, Jelaine, you're just this amazing Christian woman, and da da da. And man, it just pains me to write you these letters. That's not what he meant. He was pained and grieved because guess what? Conflict is not fun, confrontation is not fun, especially with people that you love. How many of you in here have had to have difficult conversations with people that you love? You knew you had to have them. You knew you had to do something to communicate to them that they were doing something or acting in a way that was not right. You do this because you love them. You don't do it because you want them to feel shame. It is the foundation of your action is love. And Paul is sitting here saying this. It was anguish to him. He wrote with tears coming from his eyes. Why? Not to grieve them. I wasn't doing this to make you feel sorrow. I was doing this because I wanted you to see how much I loved you. And for a pastor and a pastor's wife, this is the way that we function and operate. And many times when you go and you try to correct people, there's that initial rejection. You're doing this because you just want me to feel bad. Oh, you think you're better than me because... No. I do this because I love you. I don't want you. To no destruction. I don't want you to be caught in the snare of sin. He goes on here in verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. So in context here, and we're going to go on to read this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I can ask you guys to go read that chapter because there is, there is some belief here that who Paul is going to be talking about in this part of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is the individual in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 
where Paul makes the comment and mention in this letter that I hear that there is some sexual immorality among you, that a man was even having sexual relations with his father's wife. Okay, So some stuff that was going on that Paul had to address. And he didn't call this man out by name. He didn't write his name in the letter. But there seems to be some belief here, and I can see it, especially in linking it up, that who Paul is going to go on here to talk about is this individual. That Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was rebuking the church because they were allowing this individual to just openly come into fellowship. Openly allowing them just to come in without any kind of approach, any kind of confrontation or teaching to them. But there's a lesson here that Paul's going to teach that I want to bring home and connect with you guys. So we're going to go on and read first. Once again, in verse 5, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Verse 6, The punishment inflicted on him, so he's speaking about an individual here and a person, by the majority is sufficient. So, Whoever this individual is, and I believe is your pastor, I'm just going to give you my point and take on this, is I believe that this is who Paul is talking about from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's just my belief. He's saying that what has taken place in response to what he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians, because he tells them to remove them from the fellowship and to give their flesh to Satan for destruction. Allow this person to go out in the world. Remove them from fellowship. We know that the, the point of church discipline is restoration. That is the purpose of church discipline, is to restore the person back to where it is they need to be with God. Period. Church discipline is to not remove the cancer from the body because they don't make your church look good because they're living a certain way and you just need to get rid of them. That's not why we do church discipline. Yes, there's confusion and there's certain things that can take place in the body that you have to be mindful of, that me as a pastor have to be mindful of, but the reason why we exercise church discipline is to make sure to try to leave it now to God to restore this person back to right relationship with him. So Paul is saying that, that what has taken place, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority, it's sufficient. It's enough. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So I want to backtrack a little bit. I've said to you guys many times that I feel like the church in the West lacks in church discipline. How many of you would agree to that? Just like proper church discipline. Many times the reason why I think that it lacks in church discipline is I could boot Jelaine out of the church because of her sin. I could go through the proper steps where I approach her and we talk and she still doesn't. I, st I bring it in front of the church and she's like, you're crazy. And then I have to excommunicate her. I have to remove her from fellowship. And I do that. Why? To hopefully bring her to a place of restoration with God. As Paul says, I'm giving her flesh over to Satan for destruction. Allow her to see the mess-ups and the screw-ups that she's doing. Allow her to go through some stuff where she sees her sin and goes, I repent. I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. She repents and she asks even forgiveness from the church. But Jelaine doesn't do that. She, she doesn't have to do that in the West. You know why? Because she'll just go find another church. That's it. Go find somewhere else that doesn't know her sin. And she's just sitting there. She can work her way back in, still living in her sin. And she shows up to church on Sunday. She brings donuts and cookies. And people love Jelaine. But she's still living in sin. All the meanwhile, 
She might even start talking to the, other, the new church as well. And I'm not going off on a tangent here, but hey, the, the last church I was at, they were crusty. They didn't know love. They treated people like dirt. I left that church. No, she got excommunicated. She got removed. But why? Not to grieve her. It's because they loved her. So I believe that to be something that is lacking in the church. However, there's another thing that I believe to be lacking in the church that Paul's addressing here too. Grace. How many of you would agree that the church of the West lacks grace as well? Oh, that's a biggie. Paul is saying you are just as guilty, just as guilty for allowing this individual to come into the gathering without approaching the individual, without confronting the individual, without calling out the sin of the individual. You're making a mockery of the gathering by doing this. Why are you doing it? Maybe you don't want people to not like you. That's a biggie in the church today, right? I don't want people to dislike me, so I'm going to compromise and turn and say and do whatever. Whatever the reason is. Paul is saying that you're also just as guilty because now you're failing to show grace. That the punishment that you bestowed on this person, this excommunication, it's sufficient. That this person, obviously, when you're reading in, in the text here, this person has repented of their sin. Paul's saying it's time to forgive, but he ups the ante, and this is something that's going to be extremely convicting for you as it's convicting for me. As a church, we're not called to just simply forgive in a way that we've always forgiven, right? Jelaine, is a, is a, here's an example. My wife gets booted out of the church. She repents. She comes back. Man, pastor gave a good sermon about forgiveness, right? Like, yeah, we, we did our thing as a church. We called her out. She, she went out. She lived some wild stuff out and all that stuff. And she came to a place where she's like, Lord, I need you. She, she's feeling that sorrow, that weight of repentance. She's come back. And we see Jelaine and we're like, all right, I remember pastor's sermon. Sweetie, we, we, we forgive you. All right, let's move on. Now, she's back in church, right? She's, no. What, is, what does Paul say that we're called to do with the forgiving? Forgive and what? Comfort. Forgive and comfort her. When God forgave you and I, as he continues to forgive you and I, does he just forgive us? Or does he also comfort us in our day? Did he just one and done it with us when it came to Jesus dying on the cross? Or who do we go to now for comfort? Who did we just read about in the first chapter as the God of what? Comfort and mercy. I learned in my life, I'm going to give you guys just a, a little story here as it's a, a shorter sermon, so I want to make sure that I do this also to fill up some time. But one of the first people that I was called to forgive in my life when I came to the Lord was my dad. Some of you know this story. My, my, my dad and I did not have a very good relationship for a very, very long time. Very long time. When I gave my life to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, it is yours now. And I'm like, just like, this is amazing and great. I read through scripture. I see that I need a savior because I'm a sinner and all this stuff. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? And I just remember, as I've been forgiven much, I now have to forgive much. You got to forgive your dad. Forgive your dad. Okay. All right. Man, this is tough, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to forgive my dad. And 
or forgive them. Yay, right? Literally, within days, I get a phone call from my dad from the stables in Quincy. He's drunk. Telling me that he has stage four lung cancer. So this, this euphoria, forgiveness, and rocking for God instantly was brought into this place of what was all that about, God? You want me to forgive this man, but now you're going to take him away. And there was a moment and a place and a sovereignty and a providence in play there where for the next two years, I had the most amazing relationship with a man that I would never trade for anything else. And a huge part of that was my wife. Now, why would Jelaine have to play a role into that? Because my dad's illness gave me an opportunity to not just forgive him, but to what? Comfort him. My wife was amazing at that. Like we were there in his, in his home, like his last days when he's dying and watching my aunts like argue with each other over his body as he's like passing away. And we're just sitting there just like, this is amazing, great. But we had like Papa John's and all that. But I remember like one of the last days my dad was alive, he had his IV thing with him and he had to go to the bathroom and he couldn't get up that well. I just looked at him. I said, Dad, I'll go with you. So I remember walking with my dad to the bathroom and standing there with him as he's going to the bathroom. And flashbacks is like a kid as well. Like some of your parents just would use the restroom with the door open and not care. Like I'm a grown man now. My dad's doing that. But I'm just sitting there and I'm talking to him. And it was in the midst actually of the ability and the grace that God gave me to comfort him that made the forgiveness flow all that much more. Forgiveness is a very difficult thing to accomplish from a distance. Amen or ouch? Amen. It is very difficult to accomplish from a distance. And many of you in here have people that you have not forgiven because you've kept a distance. Maybe you've said you've forgiven them, but you failed at the most important thing of that. And that's to comfort them as well. And I don't know what that looks like in your, in your scenario, in your situation. I don't know. I'm not telling you to go out there and be a doormat. I'm just telling you to go out there and remember that it's not about what that person's done to you as a Christian. It's about what God's done for you as a Christian. And I know that when I said to the Lord that my life now belongs to Him, and He said, and I'm like, I'm, I'm yours, I'm ready. It was a no surprise that He put something in front of me that was going to glorify Him. Not comfort me, not make me feel good, but give him glory, but also give me strength and give me growth as well. And how beautiful of a thing that it was. It's something that I'm wrestling with in the beginning where I'm like, Lord, he's going to die and all this stuff. There's literally just this feeling of like, do you have faith in me? Do you have faith in my faithfulness and trustworthiness? And as I said to you guys last week as Christians, that's what this is about. That is biblical faith. It is our response to God's trustworthiness and His faithfulness. That's what biblical faith is. And I knew, I knew and felt this overwhelming sense of peace that I had to forgive my dad in the way that God was calling me to forgive him. And that involved comforting my dad. And guess what? That forgiveness 
was so much smoother and easier and edifying and amazing. And it showed God glory in the process of it. Like being with my dad in the midst of those moments that I never would have even thought that I would have been in for two years was phenomenal. So I ask you guys, once again, and, and Paul in, in context here, he's talking about this as a church, that we as a church, that, that we are, are guilty at, at showing discipline to people as he addressed in 1 Corinthians, but we can easily be just as guilty as showing grace to those people who truly repent. Truly repent. We need to practice that as a body, but we also need to practice that as Christians. Because I feel like that when we practice that in our individual lives, we truly are stepping into God's will to where we then begin to have proper discernment and wisdom on how we're called to be and act with these people, where God wants us to go. And when we don't act in accordance to His will, I think we start to hear things that we think are God, but are truly our flesh or even the enemy. And it puts us down these paths of self-righteousness rather than glory for Him. I'll start off here at verse 6 again. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So he's saying whatever took place, what you guys did was good enough. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient and everything. So he's wanting to write to this church. He's wanting to address the stuff going on in the church. But he's wanting, once again, to give them that space to read Paul's writings and go, okay, let's assess this. Let's see what's going on. Paul wanted to see if they would be obedient based on the things that he wrote and called out that they needed to look at and repent of. Anyone you forgive, guess what? I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his scheme. So Paul wants to emphasize this, and I want to break this up once again. As a church, we are called to forgive. Why are we called to forgive? Because we know that we are in the presence and the sight of God. We are living. He's watching us right now. He sees what we're doing. Amen? So in knowing that, and knowing that we are his beloved, we forgive because we know he's watching. We want to give him glory in the midst of this. This is what we just covered. And he says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan is craftier and more clever than you guys probably realize. I said this to my wife this week as I read through this. That Satan is not simply just out to make your days bad. He's pretty crafty. He will even use the sorrow of a person that has repented of their sin as a way to keep them living in sin. And you guys might say, well, what do you mean by that? So let's say we go back to Jelaine. Jelaine, I love using you as an example, even though you're not a heathen. Jelaine comes back. Let's say we as a church, we fail at the grace side of things. Okay, we, we responded to the letter first sent. All right, we can't let the heathen just come in here and do what the heathen's doing. We got we to gotta exercise church discipline because we love God. 
This is a holy place. So we excommunicate her, and Jelaine comes to a place of repentance, and she comes back. We tell her, we don't, I don't know if we can forgive you for that. Maybe we can forgive you, but we're, we're going to kind of leave you in the back. You know, it's, it's still a little touchy for us to deal with what you've done. Makes us uncomfortable. And I know I don't want people to see me talking to her in the church because then they're going to start thinking some about me. But we forgive her, but the comfort stuff, we're just going to keep at a distance. So we're forgiving from a distance. What do you think that does to Jelaine's sorrow? Does it lower it or does it enhance it? It enhances it. The devil is so tricky that by us, us, the church, keeping Jelaine in that space of sorrow, do you think Jelaine is going to just start living this life for God? Or do you think she'll live a life that is completely against what God wants her to live in the place of that sorrow? And I want you guys to think about your own lives. How many bad decisions have you made in your life in the midst of emotional distress, of sorrow, of grief, of pain? If we're supposed to be the ones showing grace, forgiving as we've been forgiven, comfort as we've been comforted by God, and we don't do that to a person who's truly repented of their sin, she's just going to sit there in her sorrow and be overwhelmed by it. But we as the church, guess what? We know better. We should know better. We know that Satan wants us to stay separate from her, to make her feel that sorrow, because guess what? Satan can get her in that way. He might not strip her of her salvation. He doesn't have that authority or that power, but he can make Jelaine's life a living you-know-what, because she's just going to operate in sorrow and not operate in grace. And for us as Christians, our whole life and the essence of our being should be operated from what? Grace. Because when I operate from grace, you know what that means? Once again, it isn't about what you've done to me. It's about what God's done for me. And when I look at your transgression to me, and I'm called to forgive because God's forgiven me, what you've done to me is chump change in regards to what God's done for me and what he continues to do for me as well. So we as a church, we are aware of the schemes of Satan. We know that when a person repents and they come back to the church, that we are called to show grace. And if we don't show grace, that will keep the person living in sorrow, being overwhelmed, and they'll continue to live in sin, not giving God the worship that he deserves. Does that make sense? Going on here in verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Mas on to Macedonia. Bless you. I love this phrase in just context because this once again emphasized even the great Apostle Paul needing someone for ministry. This is a, a passage that when I came across it this week, I just read it and I go, you know what? This once again just goes against those individuals and think that they have to just lone wolf their faith as a Christian. Paul. He needed Titus. He was, he was worried. He was concerned. He, was, he knew, like, there's a door that's open, but I need Titus. Titus isn't there. So his plans went to that to make sure that he was able to connect with Titus. We as Christians need one another in ministry, period. I as a pastor need Christians in my ministry 
period. Support, encouragement. You guys need support and encouragement. You need each other in this body. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And this is Paul giving a contextual emphasis to those who are listening that are probably familiar with the Romans. So what would happen in Rome when a general would conquer someone in war is there would be this procession that would take place where the general would literally ride through the town on this white horse. And he would have all the conquered kings and slaves and all of that lined up with them. They would be in chains. But there would also be these incense that would be burning. And there would be flowers everywhere. It was this amazing event that took place. So Paul is speaking to that in this letter here. He's wanting people to get that imagery. Okay, He's saying, Christ, who always leads us as captives, or thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. So get that imagery in your brain, okay? White horse, this conquered king riding through, or this general, okay? Christ is our heavenly general. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death, and to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? I want you guys to think about this, okay? And I've, I've preached on this in the past. When you preach Jesus Christ, we've talked about this, about being the salt and light of the world, right? Light, in particular, does one of two things. It exposes, we know, bad deeds. It exposes things. Shows the truth. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the truth of the world. We are ambassadors of Christ. So we walk around as ambassadors of Christ, living lives as such, speaking truth as such. So there's this light that is permeating from us because we abide in Christ. There's one of two reactions that you're going to get from people for that exposure. They're going to either be drawn to you or what? They're going to be repelled. Bible says, right? The world doesn't like their evil deeds being exposed. So when you think that they hate you, just understand and know that they hated me first, Matthew 10, 22, or 10, 22. So understand and know that. So what Paul is wanting to even sit here and say, he's emphasizing, he's kind of elaborating on that, that, that we are the aroma to God of the knowledge of Christ. So think of the procession, right? Marching through Rome. You have Jesus in the forefront. You have us at the side. We're the aroma. We're the incense. And people are smelling that incense as we're venturing and journeying through life, right? So contextual here, the landscape isn't fitting anything, but people are smelling that aroma. You're going to have one of two reactions to that scent. You're going to have one group of people, very small group of people, that will smell that, and they're going to say, that is the most beautiful scent I've ever smelled in my life. I've never smelled anything like that in my life before. I want to continue to smell that. And they're going to be drawn to it. It's the scent of life. It's the scent of truth. The scent of purpose. Then you're going to have another group, the majority, that will go, that is an awful, awful smell. It's almost like death. It's this it's got this 
odor to it that I don't, I don't really care for. What, what is that that you're wearing kind of thing? We have to understand and know as Christians that this is what happens when we speak Jesus Christ, when we live Jesus Christ. To those who are being saved, it's the aroma of life. For those who are perishing, it's the aroma of death. And we have to come to terms with that. And I think as a church, sometimes we struggle. Once again, our pride tells us that if I just speak it enough, in a certain way, with a certain fervor, they're just going to love the smell. And if they don't love it, guess what? It's something that I must have said wrong. Or I didn't say it right enough. I didn't say it with enough passion, enough energy. But Paul already reminded us in 1 Corinthians as a pastor, like, I don't need to come to you with these special fancy words. I don't need to try to act like I have the power and persuasion in the message that I speak because when I do that, I'm actually draining the power from the cross because people are looking at me thinking I have the power to save. We just have to go out there and live Jesus. Live the gospel. Speak the gospel. Know the gospel. So he's wanting us to know that. To the one... We're the aroma that brings death, and to the other, the aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? And Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, who's sufficient, who's equal for such a task. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Remember the context that I said of this book. There's false apostles and false teachers out there that have been criticizing Paul. He's not Jewish enough. He doesn't speak that well. He doesn't get divine revelations from God. We do. We hear from God all the time. He's not doing this for money. Paul is indirectly criticizing these individuals there. We're not doing this to peddle the word. And this word peddle, I told my wife, is actually a word that comes from the wine community. When you would peddle wine, people that would line along the streets, which they still do in some countries, they probably do it here in the United States. They'll dilute the wine down, but try to sit there and tell you that, wow, this is the best wine that you can buy. Come and buy this wine. It's amazing wine. And they even dress up like the, the, the carts and stuff that the wine's being sold from. They put them in fancy barrels. The people that are selling it are adorned and look a certain way. So you look at them and you think, man, this person must know their wine because they're the most beautiful people with the most beautiful barrels and the most beautiful cart. I need that kind of wine. And all you're buying is flavored water. It's diluted. It's not the good stuff. Paul's saying that. We don't do this. We don't peddle the word. We don't dilute the word. We don't skew it. We don't water it down. We don't adorn it in a certain way. We give it to you in the way that it was meant to be given. We give you the good, hard stuff. We give you the gospel of Christ. We preach Christ crucified. We might not look the best. We might not speak the best. We might not ask you for money, but we're giving you that which saves. And that's God's word. Because we trust and believe in the power of his word. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word for God. For, of God for, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God. So once again, he's emphasizing this presence. I stand up here as a pastor, knowing when I talk to you guys, and I start speaking Christ, and I have this Bible open, that God is listening to what I am saying. I take that seriously. I'm putting my place in, or myself in a place of stricter judgment for that. 
In Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Operating from a place to know that God is listening and God is watching. Amen? So what I'm going to do here for the next few minutes is, is I want you guys to take this message, I want you to package it up in your brain, and I know that I spoke on some things about forgiveness and comfort and all of that, and I know as I was reading through this that I felt convicted about some things that I have been holding on to in regards to forgiveness and comfort, combining those two things, understanding that, that by doing one as a Christian, you should do the other, and by doing the other, it actually makes the other one easier and more edifying. I want you guys to take this time with the Lord, asking for forgiveness if he's revealed this to you in your heart, that there's some bitterness, a bitter root inside of you that you've been holding on to towards individuals and people. Or maybe you've convinced yourself, pretty good Christian, I've forgiven some people. Man, I've forgiven from a distance. I have not comforted people. Not saying I'm, I want you to be a doormat. What I am saying is, is do you trust in God's strength and his power? because it's in your weakness that his power is made perfect and sufficient. So when you put yourself in that place to comfort, forgiving in a close range, he'll give you the strength. He'll give you what you need. Amen?